Our New Testament reading this morning is found in John chapter 6. We'll start at verse 60. And we'll finish the chapter. So John 6, verse 60. When many of His disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus knowing in Himself that His disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where He was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray Him. And he said, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. For he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. And our sermon text this morning is found in Matthew 21. Turn back a few books. Starting at the beginning of the chapter, verse 1, Matthew 21. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and He will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and He sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna! Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. This is God's Word. You can be seated. Good morning. It is um, Palm Sunday. The beginning of Holy Week. And today... What Justin just read is the uh, triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Um, And before I get going, it's 
such a joy and a privilege um, to be here, to, to have an opportunity to take God's word and open it for us. Um, and I, it's, a, it's a privilege that I, I don't take lightly, so uh, it's good to be here. It's very good to be here. So in the passage today in Matthew 21, and we will be looking at three different passages. We'll be looking at Matthew 21, with, which Justin just read. We'll also be in Zechariah 9. We'll also be in uh, Psalm 118. Uh, the music just lined up so well with, with all of these texts. But in this passage, Jesus acknowledges his kingship, and the crowd responds to Jesus. We can see positive and negative ways that we can respond to Jesus and his kingdom positively. We respond to Jesus as king of this kingdom, and we submit to him. Negatively, we reject how the crowd received Jesus by exalting their ideas over his. And as I was preparing, four ideas just kept coming back to mind as I would look at Scripture, look at what was going on. Um, and those four ideas are that God is the giver and he is superior to every gift that he gives. The second is circumstances are not our biggest problem, sin is. The third idea that kept creeping around in my head was that there is a proper means to attain blessings. And the fourth is his kingdom is a glorious kingdom. Let's pray. Father, I ask for help this morning. I ask you to give clarity to your word. I ask you to give all of us ears to hear what you would say to us. I pray that you would use me now as just a, a vessel to, to bless your people. I pray that you would bless them through your word. Father, let us hear what you have to say. Let us take it with us. Let us, let us be transformed by it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So before we get into the passage, we'll look at a bit of context. We're going to look back at the historical and scriptural context. Um, King David ruled Israel at about 1000 B.C., Within two generations, about 930 B.C., the kingdom was split. It was divided between Jeroboam and Rehoboam, the northern kingdom of Israel, the southern kingdom of Judah. And in 720 B.C., the northern kingdom was defeated by Assyria. In 586 B.C., the southern kingdom was conquered by Babylon and taken into captivity. In 538 B.C., some people returned to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. In 332 BC, they were conquered by the Greeks, by Alexander the Great. In 63 BC, Jerusalem was captured by Rome. Israel has had a rough time, and, and we can wonder, was this just an unlucky group of people? Was, was this just an unfortunate series of events or was there a reason for this? And we know that God has purposes for all things. 
but even more than just a general God is sovereign. Was, a, was there specific purpose? Was there a specific reason for this? And I would say yes. This was not accident. It was not luck. They chose their path to hardship. They chose this path. They were unfaithful to God and his commands. God told them what would happen to them if they were unfaithful. In Deuteronomy 28, 15, it says, But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God, or be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, these, then all these curses shall come upon you and shall overtake you. In Deuteronomy 28, 25, it says, The Lord will cause you to be defeated before your enemies. You shall go out one way, against them and flee seven ways before them. And you shall be a horror to all the kingdoms of the earth. Israel knew the consequences of disobedience, but they chose to disobey, disobey anyway. This is madness. Not only would they lose fellowship with their God, but they would face physical misery. There were a proper means for them to attain blessings from the Lord, which was obedience. Not being obedient would cause them to receive curses. The prophet Daniel would attribute Israel's captivity in his time to their disobedience. Daniel 9, 11, and 12 says, And all Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice and the curse and oath that are written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out upon us because we have sinned against him. He has confirmed his words which he spoke against us and against our rulers who ruled us by bringing upon us a great calamity. For under the whole heaven, there has not been done anything like what has been done against Jerusalem. Second Chronicles 7.14 is often taken out of context to prove that any nation that is just faithful to God will face blessing. That's not what Second Chronicles 7.14 means. It was specifically given in the context of Israel facing the curses and what they could do to no longer be under the curse. It says, and this will be familiar to us, there are songs written about this verse or from this verse. If my people, and this is talking about in, in the context of when God pours out his curse upon you, Israel. Israel, when you have been disobedient. Israel, when you are suffering the curse because you have not been faithful to God. Then, if my people, who were called by my name, humble themselves and pray and seek my face, and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, and will forgive their sin, and heal their land. Repentance was required for the curse to be lifted in their time of disobedience. And just as a reminder, this is not for us. We do not say that if we are obedient, we will face the blessings of God. And if we are disobedient, we will face the curse of God. This was the old covenant. This is one of the stipulations of the old covenant. We live in the new covenant. And yes, I believe strongly, and I've preached on it, that we should be obedient. But curses and blessings are not contingent on obedience and disobedience. 
today. We may face the discipline of God. But because of Jesus, we will never face the curse of God as believers. So that was the Old Testament time up until the time of Jesus. What about during the time of Jesus? In his time, they were still living under the curse. In the Gospels, we don't see Israel as a picture of faithfulness to God. There are exceptions. We see Simeon. We see Anna. They're waiting for the Lord. They're looking forward. They are faithful. But in general, the people were not living according to God's word. They had their identity as Jews, as Israelites, as Abraham's offspring. And they gave lip service to their religious traditions. But it doesn't seem like faithfulness to God by and large. They seem to consider their identity and traditions more valuable than knowing God himself. That is a warning to us. They could have repented at any time. And God would have blessed them, as he said in Deuteronomy 28 and 2 Chronicles 7. Their lack of full faithfulness earned them the affliction that they faced during the time of Jesus. And you want to know why Rome continued to occupy Israel? Because they did not repent. They were not faithful. They did not turn from their wicked ways and seek his face and pray and, and turn back to the Lord. So that's where we find ourselves in Matthew 21. We find ourselves in an Israel who is not faithful to the Lord, who is occupied by the enemies, who is, who is suffering under the curse. And we hit Matthew 21. And Jesus comes into Jerusalem. And this, this is a coronation. This is a coronation. This is a celebration of a person becoming the king. In verses 1 through 7, Jesus was not only announcing that he was king, but he was initiating his own coronation ceremony. Matthew 21 says that Jesus sent two disciples into the village to find a donkey. The people of Israel would understand that Jesus riding a donkey into Jerusalem was the announcement that he is king. This is the point of verses 1 through 7. He initiated his own coronation. He planned it. He put it into motion. He chose this, this specific timing to be coronated. He also chose what his kingdom would be like. The Jews wanted to make him king by force earlier. John 6.15 says, Perceiving that they, would, they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. So it seems like there is probably a recognition that if we're going to have another king, this is, this is him. They recognized him. They wanted to take him by force to be king. And in John 6, they were excited about making Jesus king. Their excitement for Jesus had nothing to do with his purposes. It had everything to do with their selfish desires. John 6, 26 says, Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. 
They didn't realize that their greatest needs are not the oppression of Rome or the lack of food. Their deepest need was a right relationship with God, but Jesus would not be coerced into being something he does not plan to be. John 6 was not the right time for Jesus to become king. And their intentions in John 6 were not his intentions. He will not let us use him to feed our selfish interests. He was sovereign in choosing the timing of the, of the kingdom and in choosing what the kingdom would be like. In this passage, we see a fulfillment of prophecy. Matthew 21.4 says that Jesus' entry into Jerusalem on the donkey fulfilled the prophecy in Zechariah. And Matthew 21.5 gives us, gives us a summary of what is contained in Zechariah 9. But let's read from Zechariah 9. You can either turn there, Zechariah 9. I'll read verses 9 through 13. If you want to turn, that's great. If not, I'll just read it. It says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation as he humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations, and his rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. Today I declare that I will restore to you double. For I have bent Judah as my bow. I have made Ephraim its arrow. I will stir up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece, and wield you like a warrior's sword. This prophecy tells us specifically, when we go back to Zechariah, it says specifically what this king would do, what kind of king he would be. He would come to save. He would come to establish peace. He would come to conquer in a way that does not contradict peace. There was no intention that this king would wage an earthly war. Not now. This passage discredits the expectation of the Jews that Jesus would overthrow Rome. This would be an unusual kingdom. This would be an unusual king. This king would be humble and righteous and pouring out goodness on his people. All of this points towards the kingdom that Jesus proclaimed during his earthly ministry. This would not be a political kingdom, but a spiritual kingdom. Not only do we see that Jesus fulfilled a specific prophecy, but we see that Jesus fulfilled a covenant that God had made with King David. God promised David that his kingdom would not end. 2 Samuel 7.16 says, and this is Nathan the prophet speaking to King David. King David wanted to build a house for the Lord, but the Lord said, no, no. But I'll give you something better. He said, your house, your house and your kingdom 
shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. This was a promise that, the, that David's kingly line would endure forever. This promise was ultimately talking about Jesus. Jesus was a descendant of David, the rightful heir to the throne. But every king after David would be a partial fulfillment of God's promise to David. Every time there was a new coronation, every time a new king took the throne in that line, that was a partial fulfillment of God's covenant with David. Each king would live and die, and his kingdom would be passed to the next heir. Not Jesus. Jesus will rule forever. His kingdom will never come to an end. Not even death could stop Jesus from being king. His kingdom will not have any of the shortcomings of the kingdom of Israel. The kingdom of heaven will not be divided like the kingdom of Israel. The kingdom will not be led by ungodly men as were Israel and Judah. This kingdom will not come to an end. Jesus is the perfect substance to the shadow of the goodness of the kingdom of Israel. Jesus riding into Jerusalem on the donkey was proof of God's covenant faithfulness to his people. By Jesus riding on that donkey and proclaiming, I am king, he is proving that David will always have an heir on the throne. Jesus on the throne is a greater blessing than thousands of years of faithful kings. God himself is superior to even the best of his gifts to us. And no matter how faithful the kings of Israel could have possibly been, which mostly they were terrible, Jesus is far better than they could have possibly ever been. His rule on his throne would be glorious. It is currently glorious. It will continue to be glorious. Because of God's covenant faithfulness, we will enjoy the rule of Jesus for eternity. And you think about that. You think about living in a kingdom, living under the rule, living in submission to someone for forever. And you may think, that's got to be boring. That's got to be a drudgery. It's got to get old sometime. No. When we think about that, when we try to imagine what the future will be in the kingdom, in the future, and we think about heaven and living for forever, our earthly limited mindsets are, that's, that's going to be boring. No, it will not be boring. It will not be dreadful. It will be glorious. It will be praise and glory and grace and hope and love forever. Our God honors the words that he has spoken. He is faithful. He is worthy of our praise. And Jesus, riding on the donkey into Jerusalem, proclaims his covenant faithfulness because he's saying, David, this is the fulfillment of my covenant to you. Jesus, during his earthly ministry, spoke extensively about what kind of kingdom 
this would be. When Jesus rode into Jerusalem on the donkey to to declare that he was king, he was showing them and us that everything that he had said about his kingdom up until that time was coming upon them. It was here. It was now. He had been telling and saying, this is what the kingdom is like. This is what the kingdom is like. This is what the kingdom is like. But now, now is the time for the kingdom to be. His kingdom is tied to his people. In his kingdom, he rules us. And rule doesn't just mean he sets the rules and we obey. It also means that he provides for us and he protects us. We submit to his rules and his provisions and protection. We place ourselves under his authority. This is a glorious kingdom. The kings of the Old Testament were a shadow of his new kingdom. He's establishing this kingdom and welcoming us to participate in it. And we'll just reflect back on some of the things that Jesus said that his kingdom would be like. He said, this kingdom is the kingdom of heaven. This is not an earthly kingdom. This kingdom that he inaugurated and he welcomes us into is not of this world. He frequently called it the kingdom of heaven. In John 18.36, he says that my kingdom is not of this world. It doesn't have the frailties of this earth. It is a glorious and heavenly kingdom. It will know no end, and we are part of it. Matthew 5.19-20 also shows us that this is a kingdom of righteousness. It says, therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do, so, to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. The requirements are high to get into the kingdom of heaven. We can't be good enough to get into the kingdom. But we are welcomed because of Jesus's righteousness. His righteousness purchases entrance for us into the kingdom. And the nature of his kingdom is that we will be righteous. How glorious that this kingdom does not thrive on unrighteousness, but righteousness. And we can consider our own day, kingdoms of this world, governments, countries. Do they thrive on righteousness or unrighteousness? Are righteous men and women ruling or unrighteous? It seems like, by and large, it's not righteousness that governs this world, but unrighteousness. So the kingdom of heaven being ruled by righteousness is glorious. It's a kingdom of truth. Matthew 13, 9 refers to the word of the kingdom. And Matthew 4, 23 refers to the gospel of the kingdom. This kingdom that we're part of is rich in the truth and in the word of God. We rejoice in truth. It's foundational to who we are and to the kingdom that we're in. His truth 
will govern the kingdom. Everybody doesn't just get to decide what they want to do. And we can look back to the book of Judges, and it said that there was no king at that time, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes, not so in the kingdom of heaven. Everyone does not get to just do what they want to do. Everyone does not get to choose what is right in their own eyes to do. We are governed by truth. This kingdom is a treasure. Matthew 13, 44, and there, there are many parables that Jesus spoke that compared the kingdom to a treasure. <clears throat> but Matthew 13, 44 says, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has, and he buys that field. What could be better? We're given this heavenly kingdom of righteousness and truth what a treasure what a gift especially when we contrast it with what we have known what we have experienced the kingdoms of this world the oppression of governments the kingdom of heaven is a gift would you not sell everything to gain this kingdom have you sold everything for this kingdom? Have you bent your knee to Jesus? If you don't know him, yield to his lordship today. He is king. He is king. Repent and believe on Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. If you don't know him, then everything that you do in this life will die with you when you die. Everything that you think that you are accumulating, every treasure that you think that you are storing up will rot. You can have a kingdom that is eternal. You can have Jesus, who is the greatest treasure of this kingdom. Turn to him today. Call upon him. He will save you. What does it look like to be part of this kingdom. We recognize that this is not an earthly kingdom. This is not a political or religious movement, however much people over the years have tried to co-opt that and make it into that. This is a real kingdom with a real king. We are the subjects of this kingdom. It is a kingdom that will be around forever. It will be around when all other earthly governments have crumbled. We recognize that our king is perfect. He is not just good and merciful. He is perfect. We submit to his rule and his reign. Whatever he says, we yield to. We are blessed by doing so. His commandments are not burdensome. We place ourselves under his authority. And not just to obey what he says, but we trust that he will take care of us. In the ancient world, kings were not fat, lazy people who sat on thrones. They protected their people. They would often ride out into battle for their people. They protected them. They made sure good kings made sure that their people were taken care of. Jesus does that for us. 
This kingdom is a kingdom of peace and righteousness and joy and truth. However, it is a kingdom, and kingdoms have enemies. We face opposition from the devil, but our king has said that the gates of hell cannot stand against the advancement of this kingdom. We will be triumphant in the end. We also face opposition from the world. But we know that Jesus has overcome the world. His kingdom will grow. We have the privilege of proclaiming the truth of this kingdom to those who are not part of it. God uses us and our feebleness to advance the kingdom as the gospel goes forth. That's one of the reasons why we support missionaries like the Johnsons and the Jubelos, to take the gospel where it has not been proclaimed. And as they proclaim truth to people in Papua New Guinea, and those lives are transformed, the kingdom grows. And we have taken part in that. And we see Jesus building his kingdom. But he doesn't just do it on the mission field. He uses the proclamation of truth to save those who, are, who hear, but we live in community with one another. The proclamation of the truth to one another builds his kingdom as well. What we're doing right here, this is kingdom building. This is not incidental. This is not minor. This is not just something that we do because we have to. When you hear the teaching and preaching of the word of God and it transforms you, it builds you, that is God building his kingdom in you. This is the kingdom that Jesus was announcing when he rode the donkey into Jerusalem. It is a kingdom that grows and that we grow in. Our ultimate purpose in this kingdom is to glorify God in all that we do. That is what it looks like to live in this kingdom. Let us rejoice that he has brought us into his kingdom. In verses 8 through 11, we see the crowd's response to the coronation. And there are two crowds. There's a crowd outside Jerusalem, and there's a crowd once he gets into Jerusalem. So when Jesus starts riding the donkey, the, the disciples have gone. They have retrieved it, which is amazing. Jesus sovereignly orchestrated there for, to be a donkey and a mother of a donkey and for these disciples to find it. And he orchestrated that a person might ask them. And if the person asks you, you tell them the Lord has need of it, and they're going to be okay with that. If you go in to your neighbor's house and start getting in their car and you drive, start driving off, and you just say, the Lord has need of it. They're going to call the cops. Jesus orchestrated this so that the disciples just walked up and the first donkey they see, that's it. They take it and they just say, the Lord has need of it. Jesus is sovereign. When they brought the donkey back and Jesus sat on the donkey, the crowds responded. They knew 
They knew what he was doing. They knew the prophecy that we looked at in Zechariah 9. They knew that he was announcing that he was king. They gave two responses, two types of responses. One was physical and one was verbal. The physical response was covering the streets with clothes and branches. The verbal response was crying out, Hosanna, and blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Both of these responses were enthusiastic about his kingship. But both of these responses show a misunderstanding of what he came to do. It's easy to say things and do things that we like. It's another thing to do the right things properly and from the heart. So we'll first look at the physical response, the palm branches and clothing. They covered the streets with clothing and branches. Other Gospels, I think it was John, specifically say that it was palm branches, which is why we call this Palm Sunday, because they broke out palm branches, covered the streets. That was the response that they would give to a victorious king entering Jerusalem. And this is good on one level. This is good that they were recognizing his kingship as he rode in. If they would have just been indifferent, oh, a guy's riding a donkey, nothing to see here. If they would have been indifferent, they would, they would not have been recognizing that he was king. But them getting clothes, getting palm branches, covering the streets, shouting Hosanna, they were recognizing that he was king, and this is good. But he didn't come to conquer. Not like they were hoping for. Remember from Zechariah 9 that this king would come to proclaim peace rather than war. Laying palm branches and clothing was their way of saying that they wanted this king to be victorious over the Romans and to kick them out of Israel. That's not what he came to do. Like I said, it is good. It is good that they recognize this is the king, but they failed to recognize properly what he came to do. It was not time for him to conquer. But that day would come. There is coming a day when he will conquer and he will rule and he will cause every knee to bow and every tongue to confess that he is Lord and he will not tolerate any lack of submission to his rule. Their recognition of him as conqueror without living in submission to him betrays a misunderstanding of what he had come to do. And I'm going to postpone just for a minute dealing with the misunderstanding until I've dealt with their, verb, their, with their verbal response. Their words and their actions were very much in line with one another. Both their actions and their words were proclaiming, you are the king, we want you as king, we want you to conquer. You are a victorious king. We are under oppression. Do something about it. So their verbal response is taken from Psalm 118. I'm 
They were crying out, Hosanna to the son of David. Hosanna means save us now. They were crying out, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And Luke records them saying, blessed is the king. (laughs) Blessed is the king. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. These are references to Psalm 18. And I'll just read for you the part that they were quoting. This is Psalm 118, 25 and 26. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. And you may be wondering, where is that word Hosanna? It's in verse 25. When you see save us in Hebrew, that is Hosanna, which we say is Hosanna. And Psalm 118 is such, such a great psalm, so full of great, glorious truths. Yes, Yahweh desires to save his people. Yes, he rejoices to send deliverers to help his people, Jesus being the pre- preeminent deliverer. But there were problems with their use of Psalm 118 and with their laying branches and clothing before the Lord. The first problem was they did not put themselves in a position to receive the deliverance that they desired. Remember, they were under the Old Covenant. Remember that under the Old Covenant, their level of blessing was related to their level of obedience. We looked at Deuteronomy 28 earlier. If they truly desired deliverance, what should they have done? According to Deuteronomy 28 and 2 Chronicles 7, it should have started with repentance rather than, oh great, we've got a king, he's going to save us. No, they did not put themselves in a position to receive the deliverance because they were not obedient to what God had told them. There are several ironies of them using Psalm 118. Verse 18 of Psalm 118 says, The Lord has disciplined me severely. They were, they were under the discipline of the Lord. But that discipline was not driving them to repent. That discipline was not driving them to turn to their Lord. That discipline was not having an effect on them. They were willing to just live under the disciplinary hand of the Lord and not seek to repent and to seek the blessing that he offered. Verse 19 says, open to me the gates of righteousness. This whole thing is just tragic. It's heartbreaking. Open to me the gates of righteousness. They refused to be righteous according to his standard, which was their way to blessing. Pharisaical righteousness in their day was rampant, but not true righteousness. Verse 22 says, The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. They had rejected him. They had rejected their God. And in a week, they would reject Jesus as Messiah. They would turn this, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord to crucify him. Verse 28 says, 
you are my God. This is the focus of the matter, isn't it? They had their religious identity. They had their national identity. They were in the land of promise. But they were not faithfully following him as God. And something was off with their declaration of save us and blessed is he who comes in the the name of the Lord. I really doubt, I doubt and I question their sincerity. And I, I don't like to doubt and question people's sincerity. But Matthew 23, just two chapters later, Jesus would look on Jerusalem and lament because they were not willing to come to the salvation that he had offered. Matthew 23, 39 says, listen to the words. Listen to the words. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who, come, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They said that. They've been saying that. They've been screaming it in the streets. What is he talking about? You won't see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We said it. The words came out of our mouths. They were crying out, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord in chapter 21. But Matthew 23 seems to show Jesus having little regard for those words. He says, until you say it, you won't see me again. You won't see me again. If he had regard for them saying those words, it seems like he would acknowledge it and say, until you say it again. No, he said, until you say it. Until you say it, you will not see me again. It seemed like what they meant was, blessed is he who comes to give us the blessings we want. Everything that they're doing, everything that they're saying points to, we have this idea of blessing that we want. Blessed are you if you're going to give that to us. So a second problem was the, the, the deliverance that they wanted was not the deliverance that God was offering to them. They wanted a physical deliverance from Rome. Them proclaiming from Psalm 118, this conquering king, he's going to come in. And them throwing the palm branches, proclaiming, you are a victorious king. You are a victorious king. We need you to conquer. That shows that they really wanted a physical deliverance from Rome. He had come to give them new life, and the blessings of the new kingdom. Is this us? Do we put ourselves in a place to not receive the blessings that he's ready and willing to give? Is our pride keeping our God from drawing close to us? Is our lack of purity of heart keeping us from seeing God? Is our lack of forgiveness of our brothers and sisters costing us fellowship with God? Is a root of bitterness growing in our heart 
and causing trouble in our relationships with God and others? Are we expecting God to bless us in specific ways that he has not promised to bless us in? And do we refuse to be happy in him until he blesses us in those ways that we have in our mind that he he should bless us in? These attitudes cost the Jews the blessing that God had promised them. How tragic. These attitudes in us will cost us fellowship with Jesus and sanctification and rewards in heaven. This passage is tragic regarding these people in Jesus' time. They had already missed the Old Testament blessing of a well-ordered physical kingdom. And they were missing the New Testament blessing of the kingdom that Jesus was establishing. Brothers and sisters, let it not be so with us. Let us strive to bring everything in our lives in line with Scripture. Let us strive to submit all things to his lordship. Let us strive to live as subjects in his kingdom. Let us rejoice in our king. Let us strive to live for the glory of God. So that was the crowd outside Jerusalem. Hosanna, Hosanna, throwing palm branches down. But once they got into Jerusalem, the crowd followed them. They're probably still throwing branches down, probably still shouting Hosanna. And the people inside didn't see the beginning. And they ask, who is this? And the crowd responded, this, this was Jesus, the prophet from Galilee. Notice, notice what they're not asking. They're they are not asking what's going on. They're not asking What is this guy doing riding on the donkey? They're not asking, why are you throwing palm branches in front of him? They're not asking, why are you crying out Hosanna? Why are you crying out, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord? They ask, who is that? Who is that man? Because they knew. They knew what they were doing. They knew what this meant. They knew that this was the inauguration of the kingdom. They knew that this was a coronation of a king. They knew it. They wanted to know, who is he? Who is he? The answer was, this is Jesus, the prophet from Galilee. And isn't that, isn't that the right question? Who is that? And a question to you, who is your Lord? Have you looked to see who is that? Who is my king? Let me submit to him. This is going to be my king. Let me bow before him. Have you bowed the knee to King Jesus? So in conclusion, I've just got a couple of things. There's, there are a couple of warnings for us and then just a final thought on the Lord's Prayer. So one warning for us. This, this, is, this, is a heavy, this is a heavy passage to consider as a warning for us. The first warning is, let us not focus so much on our plan that we miss God's plan. 
Israel wanted physical deliverance from Rome. That was not bad. That was not a bad thing. That was the type of thing that God said he would do for them. It's not a bad thing to want physical things. But when Jesus came, the only kind of deliverance that they could see was physical rather than spiritual. Let us, let us not get so bogged down in our circumstances that we can only see God working in one way. God, I've got this problem. I need you to fix this one problem. This is my problem. God, fix it. Don't assume that when you've got a problem, God is going to fix that that way that you think that he's going to fix it in. His work in our lives is not limited to our expectations. He is able to do far more abundantly than we can ask or think. Second warning is, let us not try to use God to get what we want. Israel wanted deliverance from Rome. They were happy to use Jesus to get it. Jesus was a thing for them. He was a commodity to be traded. God is not to be used to get some higher good. What will you trade him for? What will you trade him for? What is higher than him? We do not use him as a means to get some greater end. What is greater? What will you trade him for? What will you trade him for? We rejoice in who he is, and we gratefully receive from him what he chooses to give us. So now just a final contemplation on part of the Lord's Prayer. Let our hearts be like the beginning of the Lord's Prayer. Matthew 6, 9 through 10 says, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. May our, may our hearts cry out, God, may your name be hallowed. Your king you're sovereign. Just think about what he's done in this verse. He has shown himself as sovereign Lord over everything. Sovereign Lord over donkeys and people. He is the king who will come conquering in the end. He is sovereign. He is worthy of his name being hallowed. And our, let our hearts cry out, O oh Lord, may your name be hallowed on this earth. May our hearts exalt his name and may our lives glorify him and cause others to exalt his name. May it be the cry of our hearts that his will be done on earth. May we be about doing his will. May we be submissive to his word. May his will be done in our lives. And may his kingdom come 
here in our lives. May we live in his kingdom with great joy. Brothers and sisters, let us rejoice in living in this kingdom. May his kingdom be so pervasive that we see a little bit of heaven on earth. Let's pray. Father, we rejoice in your word. We rejoice in the Lord Jesus coming and proclaiming his kingdom, his kingship, that he is here, he rules, he reigns. We rejoice in that. We rejoice in the kingdom that you've established. Father, let our hearts be to live in this kingdom submissively, obediently, lovingly, joyfully. And let us see it grow. Father, I pray for everyone here, everyone who may be listening, if they haven't bowed the knee to King Jesus. I pray that they would do that today. I pray that they would bow the knee to Jesus, submit to his lordship, submit to his kingship. He is king. Father, bless the time that follows now. May we rejoice in your table. May we find fellowship with you and fellowship with one another. And may your name be hallowed. We pray this in Jesus' name.